What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks for tuning in. This week on the show, we want to give you an alternate perspective. An alternate perspective of what success is. An alternate perspective on how to achieve success. An alternate perspective on hustle culture, all wrapped in a Trojan horse. What I mean by that is our guest this week is what you would define as successful by all modern descriptors. He was the youngest press secretary in New York City history during the September 11th attacks. He helped lead the effort to rebuild the World Trade Center site as chief operating officer and then became executive vice president of the New York Jets followed by vice chairman of the Miami Dolphins. He currently produces a show called Business Hunters. He was a guest shark on ABC's Shark Tank. He's an executive fellow and teacher at Harvard Business School. And through RSE Ventures, the private investment firm he co-founded, he is an investor in some of America's most beloved brands. So why did we choose our guest, Matt Higgins, to be the one to provide us with such a unique perspective on all these things? Well, as you're going to hear, Matt is not your average businessman. He's not your average success story. And his book is not your average hustle culture book. Although it might sound like it, Matt is the author of the brand new book, Burn the Boats, 
toss plan B overboard and unleash your full potential. I'm going to be the first to tell you, I do not like the phrase burn the boats. I do not like the idea of tossing plan B overboard. And that is the first thing I say to Matt in this interview. Then we go on a journey. I hope you enjoy. I hope this changed the way you think about what you want your life to be. If it does, shoot me an email, chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Would love to hear from you. Also, share it with a friend. That's the best way you can help us out. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hope you enjoy. Let's turn it over to Matt Higgins as we talk about his brand new book, Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard, and Unleash Your Full Potential. Enjoy. So I got the book right here, Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard, and Unleash Your Full Potential. And I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't told you this yet. I don't like the burn the boats phrase initially. And then I thought I was going to be right until I was reading your book. And there was this section you talk about when you got testicular cancer. The day after the surgery, you went into work. You were working with the Jets. You had this uh, motto, half the balls, twice the man. You said, I thought I was being a hero, showing toughness and grit. And right there, I was like, see, that's the mentality. It's all costs, win, make money, entrepreneurship, burn the boats. I'm like, just not my vibe. And then you totally pulled a 180 on me. And you said, but now I just cringe at the memory of that night. All I was demonstrating was my own weakness. I'm hooked. I'm in. I can't wait to talk to Matt. What about that grit, that toughness that show up the next day actually is not what you advocate for now? I love I love that you picked that up, by the way, because if you think about it, to some extent, I'm robbing myself of my own hero story, right? right. Because it's like, for those just expand for two seconds, right? I got, I, I was freaked out when I got testicular cancer. I was relatively young. I just had a baby. I was running from poverty, running from it, from my demons. And I was on the brink of getting a big contract at the New York Jets. I was running the, the team. And then I had a pain in my grind and I was like, nah, it's nothing. And then it got bigger. And then eventually I was like, this really hurts. And then when you have testicular cancer, people don't know this, like you're on the clock. Like once they take the sonogram and they diagnose it, you're like, so we're going to need you back here in 24 hours. Like, wait, 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 I've had this testicle my whole life. Like this isn't like an irrelevant part of my anatomy. You know, like, no, you need to, you need to, you need to have it removed. And so long story short, I do it. And then, and then I'm freaked out, not about death. I'm freaked out about, um, I'm going to be picked apart by the vultures of the team. You know what I mean? It's macho culture. And then I'm like, how am I going to show it? And I come up with the idea that there's a dinner with all the coaches and I'm going to show up at that dinner and I'm going to be like, you know, whatever. And then I got a dog tag made and it's like you said, half the balls, twice the man, which I still do love, by the way. I don't. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good. I think that's amazing, honestly. And I should put it on shirts. But so, so the reason why I put it in the book and I'm so glad you noticed that I, that I turned it on its head. When I, when I look back at that moment in time, like from one vantage point, I'm showing the group how tough I am, right? But, but for anybody who's sophisticated, worldly, evolved, self-possessed at the top of Maslow's hierarchy, would be like, this guy doesn't have his shit together because no rational person would have their testicle cut off and show up with an ice pack the next day. But, but as time went on and I, uh, you know, I, I had more responsibility, I realized, imagine what it was like to be an employee working for the guy in charge who got his testi- testicle cut off and came to the meeting. That means that when I'm dealing with divorce or, you know, or, or depression, I can never tell the guy that because unless you're losing a part of your anatomy, 
it doesn't compare objectively, right? That's a pretty big deal. And so I started there. I love the way you asked me this question. The book is a Trojan horse. It's meant to bring you in. Uh, you know, some people will be alienated like you would be like, this is stupid and unsophisticated. <laughs> you know, And then a lot of people will be like, oh, this is what I want. But it's a Trojan horse to really um, deliver this message to those who are anxiety ridden, angst laden, that you too get to inherit the earth. Right. And so it's really meant to, to, to reappropriate, you know, uh, for my own purposes, the phrase burn to boats, which is very jingoistic to provide a much more nuanced view of it. What I love. So, you know how you hated it until you read it. There are people who read it who are the opposite of you. And boy, do they hate it. And boy, oh. do I love it. Oh, yeah. No, some of the reviews, most of the reviews have been really positive, which is amazing, like 93%. But then there are some, somebody wrote the other day, this is woke trash. <laughs> See, like, but then you knew you stand for something. Then you knew you wrote something that mattered. I just, I, I have to tell you, it was so, so refreshing. We've had people on the show where we actively talk against the idea of, burn the boats to an extent. It's it's really yeah. the kind of machismo that surrounds that exactly. idea. The hustle culture nonsense. Yes. For lack of a, you know, and I still, I love that we're talking this. I still wonder if my sort of Trojan horse um, was a mistake because it's very hard to rebrand a idea that has a certain connotation. But, you know, I thought at a minimum, I mean, I'm sure you've probably noticed, I start with a female founder, I end with a female founder. I don't lecture you that, you know, women are amazing. I just show you. So I wanted to have a platform to do that too, frankly, because if you pick up this book and you're into hustle culture and you, you may not be that enlightened. Right. And like, so I did a little bit of a Jedi switcheroo there too. And that makes me happy. So, but in the same token, maybe you do quote unquote, change some minds. Maybe you bring some nuance to something that needs nuance and is not getting it today. Right. And that's why I'm so excited to do this podcast, because I feel like it's an opportunity for me to deconstruct a little bit of the nuance of what am I saying and what am I not saying? Why do I believe a guy like you can believe in what I'm saying and the word burns the boats when presented in the way I present it, right? This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the HIMS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com smart. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hymns.com slash smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. 
If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com smart. Well, and, and, and that's what I want to talk to you about, and I want to dig in, because what I don't think you know at this point is you wrote this book for me. Yeah, I did. I, I've, I've had anxiety. I've dealt with anxiety. I've worked in corporate America. I've tried to start companies. I failed. I've been terrified. This podcast alone is an example. When we launched it, we didn't tell a single soul. We didn't market it. We didn't tell friends. We didn't tell anybody because of the fear of, do we look stupid when we, when we put it out there and blah, blah, blah. Right. And as I was reading, I was like, this, not only is it not what I expected, it's exactly what I needed. Oh, that makes me so happy, by the way. Honestly, like, like nothing you could say would make me happier than that. I, I, All the well, work that I put into it. Yeah. And it's true. And you have the pedigree and the, just everything to back it up. So by the way, love that too. I waited until I had enough authority that the person who's from hustle culture would be like, yeah, that Matt Higgins, like he's on Shark Tank, he's rich or something. You know what I mean? To be like, actually, that's not what I plan to tell you. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I got your attention. Let me explain to people listening some, some things you've said that, and I'd like for you to expound so we can understand it. You said, if you're someone who's worried you won't succeed, you've already failed. And I'd like for you to talk about that a little bit, because again, that's something you could read and go, man, everybody has doubts. So if I feel doubtful, does that mean I shouldn't even start? So can I unpack the whole thing just a little bit? Of course, like, we got time. There. So, so just th those who are listening, a lot of people already know this already, but but I became obsessed with this idea of burn the boats as phrasing when I worked at the New York Jets and we were uh, we were uh, in a skid and our emotive head coach, who's like, you know, big Rex Ryan, big jowls. Uh, he gives this very emotional speech to the team. We were playing the Steelers. We were the underdog. And he tells these young guys the story of Cortez from 1519. Cortez is a very bad man, so don't emulate him. But nonetheless, he's credited with this idea of burn the boats and how he burned 10 of his 11 boats while invading Mexico ultimately defeated the Aztecs. And, you know, Rex said, like, he burned the boats. All I'm asking you to do is give me one effing game. And, and you know, me, I'm like, all right, you know, kind of corny. But, you know, anyway, we won. And then the players in the New York Times did a big interview, and all the players attributed the extra level of effort they were able to achieve by this crazy Cortez story about the guy who burned the boats. So I, this is this phrase has been has repeated, right? When I started looking at my own life, I realized, you know, the most radical decision I had ever made uh, when my back was against the wall was that when I was growing up poor and desperate, taking care of my mother and abject poverty, these words lose their meaning. But like when I say abject government cheese and hawking flowers on street corners, you know, and I needed a way out and I, and the universe gifted me a hack, which was my mother was a high school dropout. She had a GD and she got a GD as an, an adult 
And I was making, you know, three seventy five an hour at McDonald's and working at a deli overnight. And I kept seeing these ads in newspapers because, you know, you're scrambling, right? And it said, you know, college students only. And I was like, what the hell is it about being a college student that enables me to 2X my income? But I need to be that thing. And then I remember I had an epiphany. What if I dropped that on purpose, got my GED? I watched my mother go to Queens College. I was like, I could go to college two years earlier. And I remember excitedly telling my guidance counselor, like, Mr. Barkin, you know, because I'd get picked up by the police all the time. And I'm like, no, no, you don't need to send the cops anymore. Like, I figured it out. I'm going to drop out of high school, get my GED on purpose, and I'm going to go and I'm going to get a job, you know? And now one of the first lessons I learned is when people don't have context because you're carrying shame, their advice is corrupted. So the advice I would get is a young man, you're going to ruin your life and whatnot. I'm like, but you understand mom's dying in the room next door. I live in dirt, roaches, and I have no food. So you think I'm supposed to work at a deli overnight carrying my butterfly knife so I don't get jumped and sit in and, you know, Mrs. Ackman's English class? Like, but he didn't know all that because I was hiding it with my Jordache jeans, right? And then everyone was constantly trying to intervene and get me to change my mind. I'm like, I know this is true. I don't know where this comes from, but I know this is the right move. And then that's when the burn the boats hit me. And that's how I'm using it in the book. I was like, I need to commit, but I'm anxious and uncertain and I have no support structure. What's going to force me to commit? And I came up with the idea of sabotage. And I decided I would get dropped. I would, I would fail every single class in high school. So I got to the point of no return where no longer were they lobbying me to stay, but lobbying me to leave. And I sat in the back of the same homeroom with the drug dealers and everybody making different life choices. And I, and I, and I, and it happened. People wrote me off. And in fact, the goal became to move me across the street to a euphemism called auxiliary services for high school, which is a way to not count me as a dropout. And then I executed. So, so what, what, you know, and then fast forward, I became press secretary of the mayor of New York by the time I was 26. So I went from 375 an hour to 100 grand an hour, and it's in the book. But more of the point of the story, why I, why I wrote the book, history, the military generals intuitively knew this, science bears it out that, that if you allow your conviction to be eroded with a, ver a lesser version of your plan A, which is what a backup plan is, a way to achieve the subordinate goal, I want to be a you know, musician, but you know I'll settle for a job at the music store. That's your plan B, your backup plan. Merely contemplating your plan B statistically, materially diminishes the likelihood that you're going to be successful. So back to your first question about being a doubter. The thing is not saying to you that you can't inherit the earth. The thing is saying the thing you need to work on is a risk you know, synthesis process, whatever it is that's making the doubt repeat, because I'm telling you, you are much less likely to be successful. That is a fact. That's not mean, that's not rude, that's not lecturing. It is a absolute scientific fact. And that's the purpose of the boat. Now, people say this on Instagram, burn the boats, you know, jingoistic nonsense. The problem is it's not actionable. So why the book is so nuanced is I wanted to make it actionable and, and tease apart what are the metaphorical boats that a lot of us share. You and I share anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody listened to me as a poor kid out there being like, oh, I get that. I know I have shame because I couldn't, I can't, I'm you know, living in a dirty house, whatever it is. What are the metaphorical boats that are the underlying source of that doubt so that we can burn them <laughs> and that I could increase the likelihood that you'll actually achieve planning? For the person, let's say myself listening, and I see you, I see your success, I see, I hear your success story, but that might even provide more doubts because I go, how did he manage to do this? And I won't even take action. What advice do you give based on the belief and based on what you talk about that we, we can do it, we can burn the boats when somebody just has a lot of, a lack of belief in themselves? Such a great question. I mean, 
it's the reason why I work so hard to not manifest as the person on Shark Tank and all the assumptions you might make about me or the person teaching at Harvard Business School. These are pretty heady credentials. It's a reason why the book is just littered with a degree of tragedy, not like I'm a hero, more like look at the lingering effects of it. The book ends about my mother and how I never reconciled. I mean, it's 47, 40, I'm embarrassed, a 48 year old man still teary when I talk about, you know, her last day on earth, like these things don't quite heal, but also talk about, I opened the book with real failure, my SPAC where I returned the 200 million, my TV show getting canceled and, you know, my cancer, my divorce. So, so my answer to you is like, you can't read the book and not see some version of your flawed self, <laughs> anxiety or otherwise. I don't want to share the story of imposter syndrome but Shark Tank. I'd much rather you see me on tape. You're like, that ba- that badass was natural. <laughs> but then I tell you that, that I'm in the hotel room freaking out and then wanting to sub out and say I got food poisoning. Like, so that's my first answer. My second answer is the most, I didn't care to write an autobiography. I mean, when I tell you that the truth of my life is airbrushed, like just trust me one day when I matter or when there's a use of my story in a bigger way, I'll share the details. But I only use my story to credentialize the following, which is I'm not extraordinary or exceptional. I was put in extraordinary circumstances. This is what happens when you have such clarity of crisis decision-making. The thing that set in motion my whole life was a clarity of crisis decision-making. My mother, my mother did die. And like, you know, when you have an instinct as a child, like one, I'm in an unnatural situation. I'm very depressed and feeling slightly self-destructive and it's, it's growing and she's going to die. All those things prove to be true. So what I'm trying to say is here's my case study. Now, this is unhealthy to live in this place of hyper arousal and cortisol, but we can replicate the clarity of crisis decision-making in peacetime and sort of here's how. So I would only say to anyone out there who wonders or has doubts, trust me that the book was engineered for you, not engineered for Kevin O'Leary, who give a shit about what you think. Right. It's about about the rest of us who do. And so I I mean, I hope if the, the best part about the book so far has been people appropriating the very thing you reacted to, which I agree with you. I can't stand that sort of jingoistic macho nonsense. But they, they, after reading the book, they subconsciously appropriate it for their own purposes. A woman emailed me the other day, said she needs to have um, spinal surgery. She'd been putting it off, but she knows that she'll never achieve her full potential if she doesn't overcome the fear. And she scheduled the surgery. I'm like, wow, you've now turned the boat from Cortez and the aspects to spinal surgery. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's my answer. You said something that does haunt me, not haunt me, haunt me is the wrong word because it was a conscious decision. But you understand now, which I love you. The first conversation I've ever had, you know exactly what I'm doing with that phrasing, that that will it alienate too many people that there are not enough people read a book and know what it really was about, that it won't do that it won't do the work it was intended to do. Like it might have been too Jedi of a choice that actually, you know, I might have outsmarted myself, you know, I guess we'll find out. I don't think so. You're a both in stature and in accomplishments, a big guy worked in football, was at the scene of 9-11. It just we need more people calling attention to this in a way that whether you get it or not, it brings it to the forefront. In my experience, just on this podcast alone, a lot of people who have reached the true pinnacle have left so, so much destruction in their wake. Even they would say they don't know if it's worth it. What I mean, do you I, think about it that? Totally resonates, right? I mean, I, 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 Dave Chang was asking me. He's like, "Hey, Matt, are you happy and like satisfied with what you had?" I'm like, "No," and I was like, "You, Dave?" He's like, "Doesn't even enter the equation." So, so I would agree. You know, the part that I can't stand in life is these um, supposed, you know, guru types who pur- purport to have the answers to the test, 
and then they sort of they lecture down right and 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 it's perpetuating a lie that there's this narrative arc and everyone has a redemption story because you're required to now, right? You have to have had some kind of vulnerability, some bullshit trials that's been amplified, right? <laughs> I stumbled, my so ego true. got the best of me, but I am now humbled. And let me lecture you for $9.99 a month, right? <laughs> and then, exactly. And then, yes. So what I wanted to do with the book is like, like constantly pull the rug out under you and just you think everything's going to work out. It's like, no. You know, last day on my mom's earth, all she wanted was somebody to bathe her because she couldn't bathe anymore. Like it just, it, it, and that's reality. Humans progress and regress. And so part of me with the book just feels like my own rebellion against this nonsense Instagram culture where people are purporting not only have answers to the test, but have implemented the answers. Like I say this all the time. I wrote my book so I'd read my book <laughs> because like half the time I can't stick to it. You know what I mean? So that's my thing. Your thing is a little more of the hustle culture drives you nuts. Mine is the inauthenticity of the advice that I think is doing a disservice because, you know, it resonates with a lot of people because they're grasping, right? And they're like, thank you. I love you, guru. But what they don't realize subconsciously is like, yet I can't implement your advice, guru. And you don't really ever talk honestly about. So I'm like, I'm going to asterisk the shit out of my book. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm going to call nonsense every time I can't implement it. You know what I mean? Because it's not because it's even worse than to hold myself out there as a guy who burned the boats and is able to burn them all the time. Right. Which, which you admittedly don't and can't. Where can we start if we might have an idea or a general idea of what we want to accomplish, but we are currently sitting in our inaction, concern and anxiety? So great question. I mean, uh, look, a lot of this. uh might be might be a confirmation bias, but there's a reason why the book, again, back to Jedi, right? Oh, it's a burning boat. It looks a little pagan, right? It looks like, <laughs> yeah, like some it dark. does. Sure it's it actually does. a child's boat that was reconstructed from scratch as a rendering. And it's meant to be a child it's meant to be a child's paper boat floating in a bathtub bathtub. And and the reason why I started there is, and I'll explain why I'm starting here in this question, is a lot of the issues that we need to deal with, the metaphorical boats, stem to childhood, stem from childhood. They are legacy issues that we're afraid to confront because they're so painful. So to give you a couple of fact patterns that recur constantly, for me, it was the legacy issue of I was running from this boogie boogeyman. I mean, I grew up in hell. Everyone has their own version, but like real torture, like in a weird psychological types of torture, being parentified in a job I didn't want, you know, I felt like I was groomed to be the hero. You know, and I'm, that messes you up in all sorts of ways. But my only point is I had a lot of metaphorical boats that stem from childhood <clears throat> that were holding me back. The whole If you think about my testicular cancer story about showing up that day, that really is a reflection of necessity. I better show up or I will lose my job tomorrow and I will be eating government cheese again. I'm no, when I got diagnosed, that was my number one, like, I will not be defeated at this moment, right? They will, they will not get me. Not cancer. I was like, I don't care about the mutation. I was like the enemy who is going to take my job away and my food. So that's a legacy of, you know. So what I'm saying to anybody out there, if, if you are rejecting the premise or you're beating yourself up because you're like, I don't know why I can't fully commit, there's probably a legacy issue that is, that is getting you stuck. Because I do think we're wired to want to pursue our true purpose. Like that is in everyone's factory settings. And so my journey in the book, called get in the water does begin with auditing how do you how do you courageously look within and i hopefully i model it you know by telling you uh, starting out with some shocking details in the book the first part of the exercise look within and then the if you're a person that under in, under indexes for self-awareness self-awareness can be cultivated first by belief that self-awareness is useful so if you're someone that's like i didn't go to therapy uh, therapy's stupid. You know what I mean? Like all these people are just taking Ritalin and everything because everything's fine. You know what I mean? If you're 
that's not smart. <laughs> you know, start start from a place of self awareness. So I know we're talking psychobabble, but it's what we talk on this show, by the way. <laughs> well, right, like you said before, I'm sure you know exactly what makes you doubt. Now, maybe it's genetic, uh, or maybe it's you know legacy, but you know what makes you hesitate. Why you didn't want you know to tell anybody that you launched a podcast, you know, ten years ago. You know exactly why you did. We all always know exactly why we do what we do. Yeah, yeah. but the the scary part about that is you have people in situations similar to what you found yourself in, which is for lack of better term, I mean, literally survival was the fear, right? I can't go back to having nothing. There's the flip side, which is what I have found myself into, which I had such a good upbringing that trying to build that same upbringing for my kids is really, really hard. I don't know how to have time and be available and have money and be emotionally available and all these things. And so my thing is like, I don't know how to build freedom and purpose into my life. There are people who I think are listening going, it's just too much work. It's too hard to do these things. It's, it's too likely to fail. Over-rationalization of taking risks, I think, is a really tough thing to get through. How do you push forward when you know the reality of the outcome oftentimes? So a part of the underlying premise of the premise of the book, there are multiple levels. One of them, though, is that, you know, and I use this easy language, so it sticks, but so a little cliche, but is the joy of living is in the striving, right? That I one offer to anyone listening that uh, that the, the, the joy you truly seek is trying to touch the ceiling of your potential and your capability. That is the thing we really are seeking. We are not seeking the result. Uh, you know, anybody who's been to the mountaintop can tell you that's why you're talking before. They're all melancholy. It's because there's nothing to see. And we like looking up more than we like looking down. And so if you you first have to, in order to, for the book to resonate, you have to accept the premise that what you truly seek is to push the boundaries and understand why the hell are we here? And what am I capable of doing? It's why marathon runners get melancholy. And so do Olympians, right? Because they like the training better. So I have accepted the premise and maybe it's a spin on my, a little bit on my ADD and my intensity is that what I seek is to know, can I do it? Right. And so agree that sometimes from one angle, my book and my life can seem really hard. Like, oh, I don't want to teach at Harvard business school. Like, why would you go from Shark Tank to do that? But then when you take a step back, like, but deep down, I always wanted to teach and, and I never got a chance to know because I was denied the upbringing to know, could I really compete at the highest level? And am I really rationalizing that I only went to a city school because I had to, whereas maybe it was the only thing I could do. My mind is not sure. And that's worth a lot to sort of prove to me. But I would argue most, the vast majority of people listening here, what I'm saying right now is resonating because it's a safe, warm way of saying it. You really want to know what you're capable of, right? And so, you know, I think we have to, you know, start there. That's once you peacefully settle into that, I no longer resist like, oh, why am I trying again? Now, it's hard. There have been moments with this book. It's so smart how you started this, where I'm like, why am I having to work so hard to explain what the book is about to overcome the objection? I'm like, well, you did it on purpose. Like, because you knew there's a greater prize. If you could reframe this act of pursuit of ambition in a way that is actually actionable, you can unlock millions of people or thousands of people who believe who self-selected out of ambition because they carry anxiety or shame or, you know what I mean? Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, 
Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Wow. I, man, I wish I had transcripts. If you're listening, go back and, li- and listen to that again because I interpreted it, but I could not explain it the way you just did. I, the number of people who self-select out of reaching for what they can do, not just because of their internal struggles, but because of what the world tells them should be the norm. We're losing so much from that. It makes me want to like high five you like, yay, right? Like actually my North star of this whole, I love studies as do you, right? I'm so crazy. When my crazy brain, I mean, I don't sleep half the time. I still have a lot of PTSD to be honest with you that I don't talk about, but like, um, I love studies. And one of the studies that I love is that Wharton one, but there's a little reference in the, I love this and I can't find the, the, where it came from. There was a survey done on a train platform of 150 people and they asked 150 people, do you have a backup plan? And 48% said yes. Now a big percentage of the 52% was lying too, right? But I'm like, wow, my book is for the 48% because I know you won't get what you what you could get. And your 48% has been driven probably by you're only presented with a binary choice. It's either macho and you're all in and you're a sucker and get out on the field, son. You know what I mean? Or, or you're going to have to settle for mediocrity. There's a third way, which is to tell you the truth about how it works. And, and, and maybe we can form a federation of the willing that isn't self-possessed. Yes. Let's do that. Actually. I mean, I know this is what your whole book's about, but what do you say to the 48% who are like, I, I strive for some, but I have responsibilities such as family that I want to um, also be present for. So I can't do the hustle culture, but I have backup plans. I can't burn the boat. Like there's so much swirl. Yeah. How do we get out of that? So, okay. So let's, so this is great. So, so definitions matter, words matter. So we need to define what we truly mean by what plan, plan A is, right? Plan A is a goal, but it's not the tactics. So the first little trick your mind will play on you is like, well, that sounds like madness to keep repeating the same thing over and over again. No, plan A is just simply the goal. And using the easiest example is like, I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to make that my career. You know, I'm going to go all in, right? So let's use that. It's an easy one to do. My plan A is to be a musician. I have a dead end nine to five job. I hate it. My plan A is to be a musician, right? So what does plan A incorporate? And this is probably the most important part of the book, right? Plan A and burning the boats requires you to process risk at the beginning of the journey to lean into your anxiety, your paranoia. I am the most paranoid risk taker you'll ever meet, but I do it at the beginning of the journey and, and here's why. And here's my four step process for doing it. Question number, number, uh, uh, you know, number, number one is like, what's the worst thing that could happen if my plan A does not work out? If me going to be a musician does not work out, what's the worst thing that happen? I'm okay. And then here, I'm going to, find myself without a job at the end of this journey and have burned through, you know, $40,000 of my savings, right? Those are the two. And, and okay, what are the consequences of that happening? I won't be able to buy a house for another four years. And now second part of the question, what will I do to mitigate the very worst thing that is going to happen as a result of me going on on plan A? And the reason why that's so important, and this is what the, the those generals knew since the beginning of time, we have hardwired into our prefrontal cortex or whatever, the ability to mitigate all danger that we can contemplate, you know, and, and, and we don't trust that. And that, and because we don't ask the question at the beginning. So in the case of our little musician, you know what he said? 
I'm going to go get a shitty job again for a few years until I figure out, right? So he's already got his risk mitigation plan. Now three, what's the likelihood statistically and to the extent to which I can forecast and handicap of the worst thing happening, the worst possible thing happening, actually happening, right? And now in my case, because I have anxiety and I, you know, I catastrophize, uh, that my worst thing is so damn remote that the statistical percentage likelihood that it will happen is like 2%. And a lot of mine re revolves around losing my wealth, my prestige, my inability to feed my, my children, which is a huge narrative in my mind, right? In the case of the musician, it would be, you know, he never gets a chance to play in a band, you know what I mean? Like he can handicap and, you know, we're aware of our capacity generally. And, the, and this is a good way to pressure test the grandiosity of our plan A. And so that guy probably like, you know, I'm probably going to get on a band because I'm willing to quit my job. So I probably have a 90%, 10% chance I never will. And then here's, here's the most important part of the sequence, which is your why. And this is what I went through with Harvard. What would I not be willing to do, endure, experience, right? Suffer through in order to achieve my plan A. And when my plan A, my why is powerful enough, that usually involves coming within an inch of my life. Like I will walk on coals. I will sacrifice almost anything. I will do anything to get this book into the hands of people who need it. It is, it is so worth my suffering that I'm willing to do anything. So my, with me, what's the worst that was going to happen with this book? I'd seem like a, like, like an idiot and the book would fall flat. Like, and I would be embarrassed and I, you know, whatever terrible things. Right. So that four step sequence is so important because people, when I use, you know, go all in, burn the boats, they, they instantly reflexively assume it doesn't involve processing risk. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Thing. Yes. Plan A. And that's why it's important. The jingoistic nonsense, which doesn't help people, the hustle culture, because they don't talk about the nuance of like, no, no, embrace the neurosis. <laughs> that's actually, you know what I mean? Like, well, you, do say, it at the beginning. you say embrace the neurosis. And you also mentioned something you said, we don't trust that our brain is able to do this. A lot of things that resonated with me are this idea of call it intuition, really learning to listen to whatever you want to call it, that inner voice. Right. Well, can I let me, can I use a, uh, like a good case study? Absolutely. Make this, uh, That's what I was going to ask. Right? Yeah. So let's talk about, so why does it matter? Like, why would it matter to eliminate the, the contemplation of the backup plan at the beginning? Why does it matter? Right. So let me make it very, very let me use the book as a, as a perfect illustration. Right. So in the book on page 54, whatever it is, there's a page devoted to me getting divorced. Right. I do not want to put that in there, but I felt compelled that there's a person out there, their boat is the pain and suffering of, and the shame of having a failed marriage and they're pretty damn depressed. And, you know, there's a high suicide rate among people who are divorced, especially men. I thought if I could just share it, I could, I could touch somebody and that would be worth whatever my sequence of risk was that I talked about uh, sharing it. Now it's embarrassed. I don't want it out there. Right. So, okay. I've already done the work and I put it in right now. The book is about to be published. It's four weeks before it comes out. Right. Already at the printer. And then I get a, a phone call Entrepreneur Magazine loves the book. There's one part that they would like to excerpt. It's that page. And I'm like, of all the damn pages. Wow. Like, and I said, no. And so I was going for a walk and like, uh, and thinking, revisiting all the reasons why I originally put it in the first place as if I hadn't done it already. And think about the consequence of me not following my own advice. I didn't put it out there in the world to help that one person it would have helped. I wasted all the mental energy that could have been devoted to making sure I pushed the book, launched the book correctly. I was revisiting something. So when you embrace this formula, you stop asking, um, will I do it? Can I do it? Should I do it? You've already said, I'm doing it. 
because we already did it at the beginning, right? And so let me tell you the consequence, right? So I energy leakage from pushing the butt. I'll never be able to quantify the energy leakage of revisiting something that couldn't be changed, right? Tentative, tentative behavior. So now I don't put it in Entrepreneur Magazine. Fast forward, you know, two months later, I do an interview, a podcast in which I talk openly about these issues. I get a message from somebody uh, on LinkedIn saying, hey, Matt, uh, I just listened to you talk about this. This is the first night I'm being apart from my three children. And I'm so depressed and sad, but your talk gave me hope. I sent him a long message about what he needs to do to get through this, what life will look like for him. He sent me back a message saying, I'm crying. I said, give me your address. I wrote him a note. Page 54 was written for you. So I share this with anybody listening to think about that. The energy leakage made it less likely that I'd be successful in promoting my own book. I self-centered. We all do that to ourselves. The world never gets a chance to experience. Probably 100,000 people didn't get to read the excerpt because it would be much more efficient. And here is that person was a case study to reach out to me to confirm that the book has the right premise. You know, yeah. it's like, I know it's a lot. Sorry to go on and no, on. No, no, no. That's fair. Make it less abstract. Yeah. You know? Well, frankly, those are the things that they might make it less abstract. They also make it fascinating, too, because you think about real world implications. I think when we get into anything where we're trying to reach masses, we get this uh, unwarranted belief that these aren't people that are consuming. In fact, I had a, a a good friend of mine say, I hate when people talk about content and customers because that just makes it seem like we're just creating nonsense for somebody to buy it. Like, why don't we talk about conversation and people? Well, that's one of the tough parts about the book sometimes I've had to get comfortable with is like a master of the obvious, right? Like these aren't somebody, somebody, I love it. This is a Brit, did a great interview on the book with a real snarky accent. I've come to like the guy and we got together because it was so pleasantly, weirdly cruel. But he was saying, he goes, you know much, you know, there's not exactly like new ideas in a book. I said, oh, did I represent that I have any new ideas? I don't think there are any new ideas in the universe. I have no ideas. I have new packaging though. The new packaging is more likely for you to assimilate it, but I have no new ideas. But I had to get comfortable with the degree of the master of the obvious, which is why humbling myself and being like, hey, I'm not trying to tell you that this is revolutionary. I just think God gave me a gift to synthesize information. I'm going to share it with you and use my moral authority, moral being I come from dirt to get you to believe it. Yeah. Well, and there isn't much new in the world, but to your point, the packaging, and I've seen a lot, I've read a lot, I've talked to a lot of people. I think a big difference is authenticity, right? Am I trying to Am I trying to package it in a way that will resonate or am I putting it out there in a way that I believe? There's a difference, right. right? There is a difference and motive matters a little bit. Like I'm aware that engineering does matter because what's the point if I wrote something, then it's ego gratification, which is where most of these books go wrong. They're, especially people with success, it's like a victory lap. It's like, nobody gives a shit. Like, and even if they did, why do you care? You know what I mean? So like the packaging does matter. And I, I it's funny you said, cause I'm always auditing like, okay, what's my motive? And is that, a, is that a pure motive? It's okay to packaging it, understanding it, that it's going to be received because my underlying motive is for people to actually process it, right? So. Yeah. I got to ask you, there's a book I read a long time ago. It's called The Psychopath Test. And it, its basic premise is that people in the C-suite are multiple times more likely to have sociopathic tendencies actually be able to be labeled as something sociopathic, psychopathic, because that's what it takes to get there, Right. I do think that that is true. I think that to make it to the top of the mountaintop takes a lot. It's rare, rarer, it's not, doesn't not happen. It's just rare to meet people who are such as yourself, who are introspective, empathetic, successful, all these things. What would you say are the traits or the things that allowed you to both be extremely successful, however you want to look at it, 
but also still ask the question, what is my motivation? Because I know very few people ask that when they're putting out a book and they're millionaires. They don't say like, is this the right motivation? They go, it's a marketing tactic. It's a calling card. It's a ego thing, whatever. Oh God, it's so true. I hear that all the time. Like, really? All these years of effort so you can get a credential, so you can manipulate other people for a higher speaking fee? 100%. That's right? It's like kind of, you know, it's funny. Even the act of me trying so hard seems people are like, wow, you're really trying hard. Like, what did I do it for? <laughs> like, like what, well, you have a book now. It's bestseller. Like, who cares if it's a bestseller, you know? But so I love this question. Um, I tend to agree with you. I think that actually sociopath has a cousin called narcissist, right? And I think that yeah, from even a percentage basis, narcissist is even more, you know, now some... To some extent, it's practical because those people are more immunized from the criticism. And then you get a lot of them when you're rising up. So what enabled me to be the way I am? I think it's um, I felt so victimized or not victimized, persecuted and abandoned as a kid that I gravitated towards justice. My hobby as a kid was going to the library and going back to different times of of uh, subjugation and history, believe it or not, printing out those New York Times articles and I put them all over my wall. I was obsessed as a kid with the Holocaust. I was obsessed with all these chapters in history about when people lose their agency. I don't know why. So for whatever reason, I was very defiant that, you know, I, I want to have a voice. And then maybe because my mother cultivated this hero narrative, right, that I then felt like I want to meet out justice on other people's behalf. So that's part of it. I'm just trying to psychoanalyze. But then also, the real reason is I witnessed how um, profound it is to have no power and how that trumps all other incidental concerns. When you're on this earth and you have been robbed of your power and you truly, you can't even feed yourself, you can't bathe yourself, eventually you can't leave and nobody cares. I would always imagine, imagine one person had cared how it would have changed the trajectory of my life, but also my mother wouldn't have died. Like the, I always imagine the impact and for my life, I've always carried forward that revelation that the highest and best use of me will always be to ameliorate suffering, right? Now, it doesn't mean I'm Mother Teresa. It doesn't mean I'm not selfish. I have my own needs. I want to have nice things. But I just feel like if I'm perfectly honest, that I witnessed something that most people never get a chance to see. And by the way, if they do see it, they react to it by saying, well, no one did that for me. And thank God, like for whatever reason, I decided my empathy will not be something that this situation is going to steal from me, but I'm going to learn how to protect myself because it's very easy to be hijacked in life. And so I'm going to figure out I'm very good. I call it, I have a philosophy of proportional violence. If you choose to hurt me, I will only retaliate to the extent to which it's a drop. And then we will, <laughs> and then we will resume again. And like, I hold no grudges, but I'm very capable of, of beating somebody back I to like the middle. That. And that's always been my life philosophy. So, but anyway, back to your point, I don't think... I think the world, I don't know, is the world really moving this way? We're moving this way with language that we value empathy at the, the C-suite level and stuff. But I just think it might be par um, parroting yeah. probably yeah. more than reality. Yeah, I would. Well, I'm going to need to plead the fifth on this one, given what I do for my career. So okay. uh, <laughs> last question for you. I know we're coming up on time. If I were only to listen to the last minute of this podcast, what message would you want people to take away? I, I want people to take away, do not self-select out of ambition because you believe that you're somehow fatally flawed and that you don't get to reap the fruits of this universe. There's a way for you to do it too. And that's the underlying point of this book. You just need one, somebody to prove it to you that the thing that's missing from your life is the full commitment Two to show you how to do it, how to change it, which is the auditing and the self-awareness to not be afraid to look within. Hopefully the fact that I wasn't afraid and willing to acknowledge it when I don't have to anymore gives you the feeling of like, well, he did it. I can do it. And then, 
and then follow the formula. This formula, realizing that the thing that you're probably been missing is this risk synthesis process that enables you to go all in. Do not reject this philosophy because you feel like it's simplistic or, you know, because that's not at all what I'm saying. It's very, very nuanced. So I'd want them to hear that whole that whole sequence. Oh, they're going to hear it. I got to tell you also, one of the things you said about the formula, there's a question in here. When was the last time I was truly happy or happiest? And what do I need to do to feel that again or get there? And I was like, damn, that's a good one. And that's just like one small part of one small page of hundreds of pages. Yeah, that came from my conversation with Harvard students. Anybody out there who didn't go to Harvard Business School, I certainly didn't, could relate to this. I'm teaching and I have access to these amazing students. And I'm, what I'm amazed is that anybody here who listening to this who didn't go there would presume now that person's life is entirely de-risked by all material standards. They're able to get a job that's six figures. They have prestige forever. They've come to the... And the level of vulnerability and the insecurity and the confusion that they share is the same as anyone listening. And that was new to me. Like, wait, what? And I realized, wait, I don't need to do career counseling here. That's easy. I need to do life counseling. And so the question I would always reset because they've been conditioned to be like, what private equity firm do I want to be? It would be, no, tell me what, tell me who you want to be, not where you want to be or what you want to do. What kind of where, where, what environment felt right to you? Were you a creator or were you Im uh, implementing? Did you have freedom or did you have structure? Like these kinds of, you know, existential questions. So that one is a simple way of distilling these, these conversations I would have with these students. And I was like, wow, I guess we all struggle. We just don't know how to get to where we want to go. We don't know how to identify where we want to go. And that's a pretty good North Star. Well, yeah, I don't think the questions are posed to us in the right way at the right time with time to think about it. And that's one of the things your book does. Matt, it's incredible. Really enjoyed the conversation. Feel like I found a, you know, a kindred spirit. The book is Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential. Anywhere else you want to keep our listeners abreast of what you're doing? I'm a, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. I just feel like LinkedIn is like your vegetables and, you know, and Instagram is your is your candy. So, you know, I'm on there too, but LinkedIn is where I engage. So if you want to send me a DM, if you're going through something out there, uh, you know, let me know if you can't afford the book. Set, uh, because you whatever, just DM me and I'll send it to you if you're in the United States with no questions asked because that's fun too. It undermines the publisher sales. DM me whatever you're going through. That's fantastic. Matt, thanks so much. All right, thank you. This week's guest was Matt Higgins. As always, it was hosted by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Matt's book, Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential, can be found wherever books are sold. Now for the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to this show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.